uh, we're studying the Gospel of Mark. You can turn there. Uh, we're in chapter 10 right now. I want to talk to you today about the model disciple, the model disciple. Uh, when we aspire to something, it's helpful to find someone to imitate. Uh, you, you find someone that has accomplished what you aspire to, and then you watch them very closely, you study them, and then you mimic their patterns, their behaviors, and their attitudes. For example, um, Kobe Bryant imitated Michael Jordan. Amen? Nobody likes basketball in here. Okay. Uh, how about this one? Yellowstone is imitating Dallas. Some of y'all are too young for that, but The Rock is imitating me. Y'all laugh too hard at that. My wife did this imitation thing recently. Uh, we were at this concert, and she saw this girl, the other side of the concert, that had bleach blonde hair. And she couldn't get over this girl's hair. She said, this is the most beautiful hair I've ever seen. And she's staring at this girl for a long time. And I, I said this, I mistakenly, I shouldn't have said it. I said, well, if you're going to stare at her, you might as well just go talk to her. And she did, you know. <laughs> for an hour, she talked this girl's hair off. She's taking pictures from every angle. She's like, what color is it? Where'd you get it done? What kind of shampoo do you use? How often do you shampoo? On and on and on. A couple weeks later, Erica's hair looks exactly like this, this girl's. So I'd give her a hard time about her hair for the longest time. And then a few weeks ago, we were at Walmart in Lexington, and this man hit on my pregnant wife right in front of me. And his opening line, this was his opening line, he said, I love your hair. It's such a unique color. The whole time, Erica's looking at me like, I told you so. <laughs> it's, helpful. it's helpful to find people to imitate. And I know when I became a Christian, you know, I didn't know really enough about the Bible uh, to know exactly what I was doing. And so for me, I wanted to find somebody that, that I, could, I could emulate, somebody I could imitate. And it kind of reminds me of the passages we've been working through recently. There's a couple of characters that, you know, on first glance, you think, well, these, these are probably people that they look like they got it together. These are people that would be good to model after. Uh, you remember the rich young ruler a few weeks ago? He's like the golden boy. And everything that he touched, it was just perfect. It worked out great. He's super successful in whatever his business is. And uh, they anoint, uh, appoint him to be a leader in the church, and he, he follows all the commandments. He's, like, really moral. It reminded me when I was uh, just growing up in the church, there was this, this deacon in our church, and he was just he always smiling. His hair was always in, in perfect place, and it looked like he had a perfect marriage. And, you know, he drove the nicest car in the parking lot, and he always wore the nicest suit. And I'm sure his bathroom always smelled like roses. And I was like, maybe that's what it looks like to be a Christian, you know? And then last week we met uh, James and John. You remember they, they're called the Sons of Thunder because they were part of Jesus' inner circle. And they could, apparently, they could call down fire from heaven and they could cast out demons. And they were there for some of the most miraculous events in Jesus' life. And it reminded me of this lady. I went on a mission trip in Philadelphia and I met the most spiritual, she was like a spiritual superhero. She's the most spiritual person I've ever met. She's one of those ladies, she carried around one of those horns that she just blows like randomly. Have you seen those, those horns? And uh, she told the story of one time she came up on a wreck and this guy had died. He'd, he'd uh, driven off this, interpat, this uh, overpass and his car flipped upside down. He was dead on the street and she went and prayed for him and he came back to life. And I'm like, man, I am so inadequate compared to this. So maybe that's what it looks like to be a Christian. And so I think sometimes it's hard for us to find somebody to model right? Somebody to imitate. Because 
if you compare yourself to those people, you're oftentimes going to feel inadequate, aren't you? And you're going to feel like you're just a second-class Christian. You're, you're never going to feel like you're good enough. Uh, but what, we've, what we found in our passages recently is, is those people that appear like they're perfect and p- appear like they're super spiritual, oftentimes they've missed the point altogether. Remember the rich young ruler, he, he loved his stuff more than he loved Jesus. And so in the end of the day, he walked away. Uh, James and John, uh, they were just using Jesus at, at that point in their time, in their life. They were just using Jesus for what they could get out of him. It wasn't really that they loved the Lord. And so today we come up on what looks to be a very mundane event in Jesus's life. He performs a miracle, but compared to some of the other miracles, it's very average. And it's one of those passages I'm sure you've read time and time again and maybe just gloss over it. But upon further inspection, I think what you'll see, there's a couple interesting notes. Number one, of all the people that Jesus healed, this is the only person we ever find out what their name is. So that's interesting. That's a clue. And then then also what's interesting about this this story is this is Jesus' very last healing miracle in his life. In his earthly life. And so I think this is more important than maybe sometimes we give it credit for. So let's all stand together. Mark chapter 10, verse 46 and following. They came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples in a large crowd, Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, a blind beggar, was sitting by the road. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many warned him to keep quiet, but he was crying out all the more, have mercy on me, son of David. Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called the blind man and said to him, have courage, get up, he's calling for you. He threw off his coat, jumped up and came to see Jesus. Then Jesus answered him, what do you want me to do for you? Rabboni, the blind man said to him, I want to see. Jesus said to him, go, your faith has saved you. Immediately he could see and began to follow Jesus on the road. I think in this passage, we finally find somebody who's a good disciple to model. Let's pray. Father, we come to you like a blind beggar today. Lord, we, we're all living our lives, and uh, we have different problems and challenges, but we look to you, and we see that you're holy. You're altogether different than we are. And Lord, you're able. You're powerful. You're a Savior. You're our Lord. And we come here today. We gather around your word. We close our eyes. We bow our head because we respect you, and we love you. We long for more of you. And so, Lord, I pray today, no matter where we are in our life or our faith journey, Lord, that you will come and meet with us in a very real and personal way. I pray that you'll speak through me. I'm just a sinner. I'm only saved by your grace. And so these people, they don't need anything from me, Lord. They need something from you. I pray you open our eyes and help us to see you clearly and follow you more closely. As you stand there with your eyes closed and your head bowed, I'd encourage you to just say a silent prayer for the people around you. Take a second and pray for the people that are watching online. And pray for yourself. Father, we are ready to hear what you have to say. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Mark chapter 10, verse 46, we find Jesus and his disciples in Jericho. They came to Jericho. Jericho is one of the oldest towns in the world. It's been perpetually occupied. People have been living in it for thousands and thousands of years. And I'm told that if you ever see it, you'd understand why. It's the middle of the desert. There's desert terrain all around it. But this city, a lot of waters, 
and rivers, they converge in this city. So it's a garden paradise. It's a desert oasis. There's palm trees everywhere. There's beautiful plants everywhere. And because it was such a beautiful place, because there was so much water there, uh, it was a vibrant city. Uh, there's a, a bustling market there. Uh, this is a, a pass-through. A lot of people that are traveling to Jerusalem, they would go through Jericho because it was such a lively place. And there was a lot of food. There's a lot of people. There's a lot of beautiful things to see and interesting things to do. And so this is a, a great, great beautiful city. And as they're leaving the city, it looks like Jesus goes in the front gate and he leaves out the back gate. Doesn't spend much time in Jericho at all. As he's leaving, the the picture's painted. Jesus is kind of leading a parade of people. Jesus is out front. The disciples are in behind him. And you remember last week, we said that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. You remember that. He was determined to get there. Nothing was going to stop him. Nothing was slowing him down. And so he's leading the way. The disciples are right behind him. And then there's a crowd of people that looks like it's gathering around Jesus, maybe following him through the town, and they're lining the streets. And in that crowd, in that large crowd of people, we find Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus. Now, what's interesting, there's some interesting things about this name. Bartimaeus is the Hebrew pronunciation of a Greek name. Okay, Bar means son of, and then Timaeus is the name. So he's the son of Timaeus, Bar Timaeus. Now, what's kind of, it's weird about the way that Mark wrote this. If you're a Jewish person and you're reading this text, this would be a very redundant way to say it. It's Bar Timaeus, which they know because they're Jewish and they, they understand Hebrew. They would know, okay, that means son of Timaeus. But Mark says, Bar Timaeus, son of Timaeus, the son of Timaeus. Very redundant. What else is interesting about this is Bar is the Hebrew, is a Hebrew pronunciation, but Timaeus is a Greek name. And so it's almost like Bartimaeus is, uh, we can kind of infer that he's half Jewish and half Greek. I want to come back to that. Just hold on to that. That's important. It's a hint to this passage. Um, so Bartimaeus is a blind beggar. Now in Jesus' day, blind people were considered to be cursed. You remember the story, Jesus healed a blind man. And before he healed him, the disciples asked him a question. You remember this? Uh, the disciples asked him, who sinned, this man or his parents? Because it was assumed in Jesus' day, if somebody was blind, somebody must have done something very terrible in order for Jesus or God to curse them in such a way. So they were considered to be cursed. And as, as a cursed person, they were outcast in their community. Uh, no, the family would disown them. Uh, no businesses would hire them. The synagogue, the church would ban them. And everybody wanted to stay away from the, the, the cursed person because you didn't want the curse to rub off on you like cooties, right? So you'd stay away. You'd run away from these people in the playground. And so this man lived a, a very difficult life. The cruelty of being blind, think about this, in one of the most beautiful cities you can imagine. That's cruel. And the injustice of being poverty-stricken poverty at no fault of your own. There was nothing he could do except for to beg. He's a beggar. Now, uh, Jericho, unfortunate place to be blind, but a very intelligent place to beg. Uh, There's a lot of people that are passing through, a lot of travelers going through Jericho, and so they have a little bit of extra money for their travels. And so uh, Bartimaeus is posted up in this very popular street, and he is asking these passerbyers for money. And so in this place, we find Bartimaeus, and he's sitting by the road. Verse 47, when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth. And so uh, Bartimaeus is sitting there and he's blind. And so that means that he's got superpower hearing, right? Because blind people make up for their lack of sight with their hearing. And so he hears the name Jesus of Nazareth. Now that's an interesting title for Jesus. It's the most unbelieving title for Jesus. It's just Jesus, his name, and where he came from. <clears throat> this is a title as Jesus gets farther away from Galilee. That's where he performed most of his miracles. 
uh, where he gets farther away from Galilee and closer to Jerusalem, where most of his enemies live, more and more you're going to hear people use this title for Jesus. This is the title for Jesus. If you don't believe that he is anything special, he's a man just like everybody else, Jesus of Nazareth. Um, and so the blind man, he hears that Jesus of Nazareth is in town. He's heard about Jesus of Nazareth, and he cries out, Jesus, you remember what Jesus means, Yahweh saves, God saves, Jesus, son of David. Now, son of David is only used twice in the Gospel of Mark. Here, in this passage, and when Jesus is referring to himself. It's a unique title, but it's the most popular title, messianic title, in the Old Testament and in Jesus' day. You see, it was prophesied all throughout the Old Testament that somebody would be born from the line of David who would uh, be this promised Savior, who would come and undo all the evil and establish an earthly kingdom. And it was said of this person that he would be the son of David, but he would be the, the, the Lord of David. It was said of this person, he's coming from the line of the greatest king of Israel, but he's going to be the greatest king the world has ever seen. And so when, when the crowd sees Jesus, when the crowd sees Jesus, they see Mary's son, the carpenter, the Nazarene. They don't see anything special. But when the blind man sees Jesus with his heart, the blind man sees God's son, the promised one, the Savior. The blind man cries out again and again as loudly as he can, Jesus, Savior, have mercy on me. Verse 48, many wanted, warned him, many warned him to keep quiet. And so the beggar cries out for mercy, and the people in the crowd, uh, they're probably familiar with Bartimaeus. They're tired of hearing. They hear him every day, you know, begging, calling on people. They're annoyed by him. Uh, they just want him to shut up, and so they warn him. If you don't shut up, something bad is going to happen. They warned him to stay quiet, but what did he do? He cried out all the more, Have mercy on me, son of David. Louder and louder and louder. Have mercy on me, son of David. Verse 49. Jesus stopped. You remember, Jesus is set his face on getting to Jerusalem and accomplishing his mission. Nothing's going to stop him. Nothing's going to slow him down. He's like a dad uh, driving his kids down to Florida for vacation. We're, we're not stopping at the Cracker Barrel. We're not going to look at the outlets in Jericho. You've got five minutes to use the bathroom, and we're on the road again. Right? Jesus got it. He's got it in fifth gear, and he's zooming through Jericho. Nothing's stopping him. Nothing's slowing down. But then Jesus hears somebody in pain who cries out by name asking for mercy. And upon hearing somebody cry out to him by name for mercy, it causes the Savior to slam on the brakes. Jesus stopped. And he stopped for the lowest person in this whole town. He stopped, and he called the beggar. He called him. Now, it's really easy for us to read a story like this and interpret it in this way. The beggar cried out for Jesus, and Jesus responded to the beggar's cry. It's really easy to read stories like this and apply it to our life as if we made the first move. But when you really think about it, isn't it more accurate to say that Jesus was calling the beggar all along? Isn't it more accurate to say that it was Christ who stopped 
living in the heavenly place, stopped residing in heaven, became a man, and came to earth to make himself approachable. It was Christ who came through Jericho to make himself accessible. It was the powerful and gracious name of Jesus that called this blind man to attention on that day. It was the possibility of being healed that by the Savior that compelled him to cry out for mercy. You see, Christ didn't respond to the man. The man responded to Christ. Christ came to him in the flesh. Christ called him, called to him in mercy and grace, and he responded to the call. So they called the blind man and said to him, have courage, have courage. You remember the crowd, what did the crowd say to the beggar? They said, shut up. But what does the disciples, those closest to Jesus, Jesus says, call him, and so they go to him. What do the disciples say to the beggar? They say, get up. The crowd warned him. They wanted him to stay silent. They wanted him to be afraid. The disciples encouraged him. They said, have courage. The crowd said, Jesus doesn't have time for you, but the disciples say, Jesus is calling you. Now, this is a point to ponder. I don't want to spend too much time there, but when it comes to interacting with the lost and dying world around us, those in your life that maybe society has outcast, those in your life who you look at and assume that they're a lost cause, I wonder in interacting with those people, do you look more like the crowd that day or the disciples that day? Verse 50, he threw off his coat. He threw off his coat. Have you ever noticed that homeless people tend to be overdressed for the weather? Have you ever noticed that? And so, like, you'll see a homeless person maybe walking down Lexington Avenue, they're pushing their buggy, and it's 80 degrees outside, and they have on their winter coat. Have you ever noticed this? Why is that? Well, you've got a roof over your head, and so when it rains, you've got the roof to protect you. But for a homeless person, the only thing that's protecting them from the elements are this coat. And when it's cold outside and you're bundled up in your bed all under your covers and you're warm and cozy, it's their coat that is the only thing that's keeping them warm. And so for a homeless person, their most valuable possession is this coat. And so they'll never take it off. It doesn't matter how warm it is because they would not want any, jeopardize anybody maybe stealing that coat or them misplacing the coat and they wear it all the time. It's their most valuable earthly possession. Never part with it. You remember a few weeks ago, Jesus called the rich young ruler. And he said, if you want to inherit eternal life, go and sell all your possessions, give it to the poor, and come and follow me. What did the rich young ruler do? He walked away sad. Why? Because the Bible says he had many possessions. Here's another way to think of it. Many possessions had him. He was enslaved to his possessions. Uh, Jesus calls the blind man. And what does the blind man do? He throws off his most valuable earthly possession. As if to say, as if to say, I don't need this security blanket anymore because I've found the Savior. I don't need this coat anymore because I'm no longer going to be a beggar. I found Jesus. I'd rather give up my most valuable earthly possession and gain salvation and gain Christ than to hold on to it and not get my sight back. He jumped up and he came to Jesus. Verse 51. Then Jesus answered him, what do you want me to do for you? Now, you remember last week, I told you to circle that that word. Remember last week, uh, James and John, they came to Jesus and they said, Jesus, we want you to do for us a favor. Whatever we ask, we want you to do it. And Jesus asked him the same exact question. You remember this? Jesus asked James and John, they said, what do you want me to do for you? And how did they respond? They said, we want 
to sit in the place of honor. We want one of us, when you get into your kingdom, one to sit on your right and one to sit on your left. They wanted power and privilege and prestige. Jesus asked the blind beggar, what do you want me to do for you? His response, Rabboni. Now, rabbi means teacher. Rabboni is a different word. Uh, This is a word that is only used, in the Old Testament, is only used to refer to God. This is a word that means master and Lord. And so the beggar says, Lord, I want to see. Master, I don't want to live in darkness any longer. I don't want to live in this dead-end life any longer. I don't want to be a beggar any longer. Lord, master, I just want to see. Verse 52, Jesus said to him, go, go. You don't have to stay here any longer. You don't have to be a beggar any longer. You don't have to live in darkness any longer. You are free now to go and live your fullest life. Why? Because your faith has saved you. Not healed, not just healed, it has saved your very soul. Now let me ask you a question. Isn't this a faith worth imitating? Immediately, he could see. It wasn't a progressive healing. It wasn't like, you know, the the fog started to lift from his eyes. Immediately he could see as clear as day. There was a full deliverance, no delay in any way. And upon seeing, maybe for the very first time in his life, living in one of the most beautiful places you can imagine, he does not go with his brand new eyes and explore all the beauty of Jericho. He doesn't go to the marketplace and look at all the beautiful things for sale. He doesn't go and climb up on the hill so he can look over this beautiful vista of all the things that he could do. He was free. Jesus said, go, you're free. Of all the things that he could do, this man is fixated. He is captivated by the very first sight he sees, which is his faith, the face of his Savior, Jesus Christ. And he's so fixated on this Savior that he follows him all the way to Jerusalem. Immediately he could see and began to follow Jesus on the road. Now I want you to think of all this man saw with his newfound vision. You see, he was a homeless man. and So he didn't have anywhere else to go. He follows the disciples and Jesus all the way to Jerusalem. And because he didn't have a home to go back to, he stayed through this course of events that would change human history. He saw when Jesus was convicted by Pilate to death. And he saw Jesus' body lying, hanging lifeless on the tree. And he saw all the pain and all the desperation of that silent Saturday when all hope looked like it was lost. And then on Easter Sunday morning, he saw with his own two eyes the resurrected Christ. He saw the nail-scarred hands. He saw the place where they shoved a spear into his side. He saw with his own two eyes the resurrected King. And a few days later, he saw his King ascend to heaven. He saw the heavens open up. And then a few days after that, he saw fire come down from heaven on the day of Pentecost and and thousands of people be saved and give their life to Christ. And he was witness with his own two eyes. He saw the beauty of the very earliest, the very first Christian church. Now, let me ask you a question. In seeing all that, isn't that worth the coat that he threw away? 
Now, in the same way that he saw the earliest church, the earliest church saw him. The loud and boisterous Bartimaeus. You couldn't get him to shut up no matter how much you warned him about his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Just kept crying out over and over and over, look what the Lord has done for me. And so this earliest church would have seen, would have been familiar with Bartimaeus. Why did Mark include this name, Bartimaeus, but we don't know anybody else that was healed. We don't know what their name is. Why is that? Mark writes to a church in Rome. In this church in Rome, they're divided. It's, it's, a, it's a mixed church. On one side of the church sits all the Jewish people. And on the other side of the church sits all the, all the Greek people, the non-Jewish people. And, and they had a hard time getting along. And so Mark is trying to explain. He's in this section in his biography where, where Jesus is telling his disciples, how to navigate this world, how to navigate this life without the physical presence of Jesus. And, and, and Mark is communicating to this Roman church, hey, I, I know it's hard to find somebody to imitate, but look at Bartimaeus, the one who is half Jewish and half Greek, the one that you saw with your own two eyes when some of you were pilgrims in Pentecost. Look to Bartimaeus and follow his example. So, let me, let me, for the rest of our time, I, I want to point your attention to a few things that Bartimaeus got right. A few things that Bartimaeus did that we should imitate. The rich young ruler, James and John, they missed the boat on this. They were blind to these things. But Bartimaeus got it right, and as a result, his faith saved him. Number one, humility. That's where it starts. True discipleship begins with humility. The Bible says the Lord opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Jesus said to the rich young ruler, you'll remember, he said, if, if, you, um, if you want to inherit eternal life, then you need to follow all the commandments. What did the rich young ruler say? In response to that, arrogantly, he said, I followed all the commandments since I was a boy. That's easy for me. Arrogantly, he said that. Uh, James and John, Jesus said, if you want to be great in the kingdom, then you have to drink a bitter cup. You have to be baptized with a fiery baptism. He said, are you sure that you're able to do that? And how did James and John respond? Arrogantly, without, without delay, they said, of course we're able. Of course we're able. How does the blind beggar respond to Jesus? Lord, have mercy on me. Have mercy. Take pity on me. I know I don't deserve this, but please Help me. I can't save myself. There is nothing I can do to save me, but I believe that you can. Lord, have mercy on me. You see, the way that you view yourself will dictate the way that you view Christ. The higher that you view yourself, the lower you will view Christ. Uh, James and John, the rich young ruler, they... Uh, they appealed to their worthiness, didn't they? Of course I'm able. I've been doing this since I was a little boy. Of course I'm worthy. The, the blind beggar, he appealed to God's mercy. And as a result, the rich young ruler, James and John, when they referred to Jesus, they called Jesus rabbi, teacher. But how does the blind beggar, how does Bartimaeus refer to Jesus? Rabboni, Lord and Master, Lord and Master. Don't view yourself as a rich young ruler. Don't view yourself as a son of thunder. You do not have it altogether. You can't figure everything out. 
You're not going to be able to navigate all of life's problems under your own strength. You cannot save yourself. You cannot fix yourself. View yourself as a blind beggar. You are groping through this world. You are unworthy of any of God's blessings. You are completely at the mercy of the king. That is how true discipleship begins. That's the foundation of following Christ. It begins with humility. Isaiah chapter 57, verse 15. Thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity. The high and lofty one, the the uncreated creator, the one who spoke into nothing and created everything. The one who is worthy of all honor and glory and praise, the name above every name. Where does he live? The Bible says here, he inhabits eternity. That makes sense. That makes sense, that he didn't inhabit this place that goes on and on forever because that's how big, that's how great, that's how awesome he is. Also, whose name is holy. He says, I dwell in the high and holy place. That makes sense, in this unapproachable place, the highest, highest place. That's where he lives. But also, where does this unapproachable one live? And also with him who is of a contrite heart and a humble spirit. God lives in those who have a broken heart and a humble spirit. It starts with humility. It also, true discipleship requires dependence. The blind beggar had been told his whole life that he was cursed. There's no cure for his disease. There was no place in the hearts of men for him. He was hopeless and he was helpless, but then Jesus came to town. And he calls Jesus the son of David. The blind man sees Jesus as the promised one. Not one of the promised one, but the promised one. He sees Jesus as his only hope, which compels him and emboldens him to cry out louder and louder and louder. He is desperate for Jesus. You you see, if you believe that there's another way to be saved, If you believe there's another way to be right with God, if you believe there's another way to heaven, you will take it. If you believe that your possessions will save you, that having enough power or influence will save you, then you'll walk away from Christ just like the rich young ruler did. If you believe that this this whole following Jesus is all about power and privilege and prestige, if that's what you believe, then guess what? You'll take Jesus for granted just like James and John did. But if you think... Unless Jesus is stopped, Jesus stops, I won't see. Unless Jesus calls, I won't be cured. Unless Jesus hears my cry, I won't be healed. If you start looking at Jesus in that way, then you will have the proper desperation. Be reminded today that you added absolutely nothing to your salvation. Long before you called on Jesus, Jesus was calling on you. Long before you walked down an aisle at a church, Jesus came down from heaven. Long before you said a prayer of salvation, Jesus prayed on the cross, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Long before you went down in baptism waters, Jesus went down in the grave. You didn't find Jesus. Jesus found you. You didn't change your life. Jesus gifted you a new one. You are blind, but because of him, now you can see. You are lost, but because of him, now you are found. You are dead in your trespasses and sins, but because of Christ, now you are truly alive. 
And so, friends, if it was dependence on him that saved you in the first place, if it was dependence on him that opened your eyes in the first place, if it was dependence on him that gave you life in the first place, it will be dependence on him that will carry you through to the end. Humble yourself. Cry out for mercy to your Savior. Then he will change your life. Now, this is one of the ways that you'll know you're headed in the right direction. Courage. You see, faith requires courage. We could, we, could even, we could even exchange the word faith for courage. It would work. The devil wants you afraid. Is that true? It doesn't matter what you're afraid of. He'll use it against you. The fear of rejection. The fear of failure. The fear of loss. The fear of death. The fear of what they say or think about you. The fear of missing out. Fear will paralyze you. Fear will keep you in a dark place. Fear will keep you on the side of the road begging in a dead-end life. But true discipleship will empower you to have courage and to get up time and time again. God has not given us a spirit of fear. That's what the Bible says. He has gifted us a spirit of power and love and a sound mind. And so when the world tells you to shut up, Have the courage to speak up for Christ. When the world tells you to sit down, have the courage to stand up for your faith. When the world threatens you to stop, have the courage to keep going. Two weeks ago in Canada, they passed a bill. And this bill um, was a bill that criminalized any version of what they deem conversion therapy. It's written in such a way to prevent Christian leaders from calling people in the LGBTQ community to repentance. It's illegal, basically, to call that lifestyle sin in any way. And it is punishable by up to five years in prison. They passed this bill unanimously in the parliament. And upon passing this bill, there was applause in the parliament. They were cheering at the passing of this bill. In response to this, 4,000 churches last Sunday, they took to their pulpits and they preached a a sermon. They preached sermons affirming biblical sexuality and uh, calling any other alternative sexuality sin and rejecting this law that had been passed at the threat of being thrown in prison for five years. 4,000 churches did that last. That's courage. That's faith. And that is the kind of faith, that is the kind of courage that we are going to have to have to obediently follow Christ in the world that we're moving into. Friends, true faith requires courage. Don't let fear of what others say keep you from radically pursuing Christ. Don't let fear of punishment keep you from being obedient to his call. Don't let fear of missing out keep you from abandoning your security blanket so that you can have salvation. Psalm 27, 13. I am certain that I will see the Lord's goodness in the land of the living. Verse 14. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart be courageous. Face your fears with faith. Believe that Jesus Christ has stopped what he's doing. And he has heard your call. 
He has heard you crying out, and now he is calling you by name. Believe today that the King of Kings has taken note of your struggles, and that if Christ be for us, who can be against us? Have faith. Have courage. If you're here today, and I know I often fell in this boat, especially young in my faith, feeling like a second-class Christian, feeling like you're not good enough and you never will be. If you're here today feeling so far from God, I want you to be reminded of the outcast, the blind beggar, Bartimaeus, who didn't have anything to offer anybody. He wasn't rich or well-to-do. He wasn't put together in any way. He wasn't a theologian. He wasn't super spiritual. But he knew Jesus was the Savior. And he cried out to Christ for mercy. And that was enough to change his life and to save his soul. If it was enough for Bartimaeus, it's enough for me. If it was enough for the blind beggar, it's enough for you. Take courage today. Get up. Jesus is calling you. He still hears. He still stops. He still says. Let's pray. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on us. Help us to see. Change our life. Empower us to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand together. We're going to sing a song of invitation, celebration, and remembrance. If you're here today and you haven't already taken the emblems, on either side of the stage, there are emblems. There are crackers and juice. These represent the body and the blood of Christ. As we sing this song, if you haven't already, I'd encourage you to take these emblems and be reminded of this fact. In the same way that Jesus healed the blind man and immediately he was healed, immediately he could see. In the same way, when you called on Christ to save you, immediately, fully and completely, you were saved. Your name was written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And I've got great news for you today. There is no eraser on that pencil. There is no eraser on that pen. Your eternity is secure. You are immediately and fully received, adopted, and accepted into the family of God. And it's not because of what you've done. It's because of what Christ has done for you. And so as you eat this cracker and this juice, as you take in this body and this blood of Christ, be reminded of your security in Christ. Have courage and have faith to face whatever this nasty, ugly, dirty, dark world has to throw at you, knowing that your king has your back, knowing that your victory is secure in Jesus' name. If you're here today and you're struggling, you're carrying a burden that's too heavy for you to carry, listen, in the same way that Bartimaeus cried out for mercy, you can cry out for mercy. You can cry out for help. Let one of us pray for you today. They, Gerald, not, we're here. We'd be glad to lay hands on you and pray. So come to the altar if you'd like prayer. If you're here today and you've never received Jesus as your Lord, I don't know what you're holding on to. I don't know what security blanket that you won't let go of. But listen to me. It's dirty rags in comparison to the riches and the glory that he has for you. Throw it away. Take heart. Have courage. Get up from your seat and come and speak with me. Let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you about your next steps.